new beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Dr. Joshua Black. Uh, it always brings a smile to my face when I'm back on the mic recording another episode, something I really enjoy doing. And uh, thank you for being there and listening to us because that just adds adds that much more to the satisfaction. <laughs> so before we begin, actually, we'd like to thank Mary Ann for your generous support to the podcast. We wish to dedicate this episode to her mother, Annette, who died in 2020. Annette was a compassionate and generous person. You know, we honor the memory of Annette and thank you so much, Marianne, for your generous contribution to the podcast. So on today's episode, we have Tara K. Michaud, and she is a high school English teacher and a New Hampshire native where she lives with her husband, Craig, and their dog, Gracie. So Tara's brother, Tori, died in December of 2006, and he was murdered while at work in New Bedford, Massachusetts. For eight years prior to his death, she dreamt of his death. So it's kind of an interesting thing that we're going to get into. Uh, Tara, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. This is so exciting. So it says here you're an English high school teacher. So what's that like just being a teacher during that pandemic? Is everything online these days or what's going on? It is online. Being a teacher during the pandemic is crazy. You know, really, if you look back at the date, you know, a year ago at this point, we had no idea what was going to happen. And nor at a year ago had I ever heard of Zoom or Google Classroom ever in my life. And on Friday, March 13th, when I can still remember my students saying, do you think like we're going to be closed down? Because we were hearing of other schools in like the South that are being closed. And I said, no way, that will never, never happen here. And guess what? It happened the next day. We got the call the next day that we were being closed. And immediately we went into like, what's Google Classroom? I Googled it. I watched tutorials for the next two days. And we didn't even know if we can go back into our building at that point. So I called my principal. I said, can we come in Monday? And he said, yeah, you're coming in Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. We didn't know what was going to happen. And after Wednesday, we were not allowed back in the building. We did allow students back in to get their things really quickly. And then we had to move everything that you have known of school into online school. So what does that mean? That means a lot of like Google Forms for exams, a lot of Googling on how to like do certain things. The hardest part I think of all of this is when you have a Google Meet or a Zoom or anything, all the students turn their cameras off. So then it's you talking to yourself. Oh, wow. It's like your own podcast. <laughs> it is. It's Yes, I guess it is very much so. So I will sit there and talk about, you know, Shakespeare or Knights or, you know, Eli Wiesel and Knight all to myself. And I'm and I like put on a little like show to myself, I guess. Um, in the beginning last year, we recorded a lot of them so students could watch it later on their time. Now it's different where they actually have to attend class at the time the class is being held. Mm. So there is a difference in how things were handed back then to now, which is a big help for us and for them, I think. Yeah, that's very interesting that the kids turn their cameras off because, yeah, that'd be very lonely time for the teacher and also hard for the teacher to know who's actually paying attention, all that sort of stuff. So, you know, kudos to you to be able to do that and, you know, doing your best. But I bet you can't wait to get back in the classroom. I can't. Well, so we are now called hybrid. Um, so we do two days well we we are there for four days a week and the students go two days and then they're off the other two days so i'm in the room i'm in the classroom with students four days a week our wednesday is our deep clean day so nobody can be in school so we go online for that day so it's changed and hopefully you say it gets better you can get back to um, how you normally taught but i think you know it's, it's one of those things i don't know if you know, will online ever go away now? Because it is, I, I would think it'd be benefiting some people who maybe live further away um, or just, you know, just for time purposes, if it's, they have different schedules based on whatever's going on in their lives, that they can attend that. So it, it did, you know, like one of those things that's, I wonder like what kids' perceptions are. Have you asked any children about their perceptions of the online versus in-person? Um, so I have, and you get mixed reviews. Some students really want to be in school. They really want to be there, which I, I completely understand. Um, what other students are thriving 
more than you can possibly know. You read so much about how these students are left behind. Now I teach high school and I think that makes a really big difference on how we're talking. I cannot speak to elementary or middle school because I don't know that I'm not there. But these high schools, a lot of high school students are thriving. And the reason is, is because they can do it on their own time, number one. And number two, they don't have the distraction. They don't have to worry about, you know, I don't have the, the right clothes to wear in their mind, you know, or I'm awkward or whatever the case may be. You know, we don't know what their their lives are like. We don't know their home life. So some of those students really struggle coming to school every day. True. And then we're forcing them to. And now they can be on in school, like at home and be completely comfortable. And you see their personalities come out more than you would have if they were in school. I used to have a lot of anxiety um, going to math class in, I think, grade <laughs> 10 or 11. Because Mr. Miller, shout out Mr. Miller, he's probably not <laughs> listening. But, uh, oh, man, I hated his class. And he used to put my name on the board. And it was like the first class in the morning to do a problem. And I, I had anxiety. I used to have nightmares because I would never have it right. And uh, <laughs> just you'd look up. No, nope, not right. And I'd be like, oh, my God. I, just, I hated it. So, yeah, that, I would be one of those kids who would actually prefer not to go into math class. That's interesting. So your nightmares, you got it wrong. And in real life, you got it wrong. Yeah. Well, <laughs> It's that never-ending cycle, right? It's a vicious cycle. One leads to the next. If I had more confidence in my dreams to get it done, then maybe in real life I would have. Hey, we should we should have been talking back then. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. So it's math. Uh, it is well, yeah, it is math. So uh, so looking back, how would you think you would have done as a high school kid? Would you have preferred the in person or the the online? You know what? I really don't know. I was, I'm very, I was and still am very social. So I think I probably would have preferred in school. Um, but I've also know how much I could thrive more online. So the story is, is that I apparently, I got straight A's grades one through nine. In our town um, at the time, grade nine was in the junior high and the high school was 10 through 12. So when I entered 10th grade, my grades dropped to like C's and D's. And apparently I was intimidated in school that I wouldn't ask questions. So I was shipped off to private school to an all-girls school because then I wouldn't be intimidated by, by the boys. Now, I get over that very fast. <laughs> um, but I do think going to an all-girl private school did help for a while because it gave me a voice. And I didn't care in math class or in chemistry class, really chemistry, I think was the big thing in math. My math teacher, I think, prayed for me too much. She, it was a, you know, a Catholic <laughs> school. And I kid you not, before class every day, she would say, let's pray that Tara gets through this. Wow. <laughs> and I really think that's how I got through geometry. <laughs> um, but chemistry, I never asked questions in. And I was like really scared to. And then finally I started asking questions and then others would be like, oh, I don't understand that either. So that gave me that confidence. And then eventually I transferred back to public school because private school sports really were horrible. And I was really athletic. So it was really important for me to have like good sports. And when I transferred back to public school, I didn't care the cute boy in the back of the class. But I didn't care what he said about me because I didn't understand. And if I didn't ask the questions, I wouldn't get to where I am. So I think it may be a little of both for me. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting because, uh, yeah, I'd probably prefer the in-person. I know for me in high school, I was self-conscious of that I needed glasses. Like, <laughs> like mm. I, needed, I needed glasses my entire life, but I just never wanted to. So I always sat up front and I would squint. But I always did really well in school. And it was only when I got to university where you can't sit so close to be able to see things that I finally decided to get the glasses. But I understand. Right? It's like high school is such a difficult time where you're just worried about so many people yeah. and and said like partners and how you look and all that sort of stuff and i never really thought about how freeing that would be to just shut off your screen and just listen and just do the work yeah, yeah it's a social pressure cooker and it, it really actually it doesn't really matter what group you come from there's distractions in every situation you know if you're into sports there's those distractions if you're popular then social life becomes more distracting you know, if you're getting bullied, then that becomes a problem. You know, if 
there's all these situations that if, if it was just learning the material isolated in the capsule, it would, you could shut off all those different things and probably learn better. But again, uh, obviously there's a lot of uh, benefit to having all those social, I guess, uh, situations because it, it, you know, it teaches us a lot and it's an important part of life. And that's something I look at some of these kids and even high school kids and I'm like, man, that's uh I feel bad for them for not being uh, in those situations, good or bad. Uh, sometimes it's just a part of your life when you look back on and say, yeah, I, I, that happened to me or I went through that or this is something that I learned from. I agree. I think these students are going to be more resilient growing up. They're going to be able to adapt to change a lot faster than some of us were and be able to switch keys very quickly because they had to growing up now. I'm curious about your relationship with your brother, Tori. Was he your only sibling? He is my only sibling, and we are best friends. Ah, And so yeah. talk about that relationship. So <laughs> when you got shipped off to a different school, was he sad about that? Um, at the time, no, because he was a year and a half behind me in school. Um, so, or two years, technically, I guess. So he was still in middle school, and I was in the high school. When he came to the high school i was a senior already so we didn't like we didn't really lose that part together but we were very heavily both in sports so every day we would go outside my grandfather was a basketball coach and really instilled a lot of sports and everything else in us so we had to get 100 free throws a day before we could come in uh, that was not parent directed. That was not anything else except ourselves. So my dad had painted a, a an official basketball key on our driveway, and we would encourage each other to get the hundred free throws every day. And did you? <laughs> oh, we had to. We couldn't go in until we did. <laughs> yep, every day. I'll tell you. You know those little like games that are, like a little amusement thing. We had to like shoot a basketball. I kill that game because I can do a free throw. Um, that's, in, that's incredible. And, uh, you know, for anybody who's played sports, like that, that's how you get better. Like, you know, it is repetition every day. Uh, you know, every day. Those shots, that's impressive. Yep. Tori and I were inseparable, though. We had ve- we had mutual friends. We're close in age. We're only 14 months apart. Um, so we're very close in age. And... Sorry, did I say 14 months? I meant 18 months. I had to think about it for a second. So we had a lot of mutual friends. We hung out a lot together. We even bought our first car together. We never fought a day in our life. My parents would always think that, they always would brag that, you know, our kids never fought. They weren't lying. We never did. And the closest we ever came to a fight was when we got the car together. I wanted to take it one day. He wanted to take it. And then one of us said, no, you take it. And no, you can take it. And then that became our fight of, who was actually going to do it? And I believe we actually like compromised that I was going to take him somewhere and, you know, so on and so forth. So we could like both get used to the car that day. Um, but we were, we talked every single day, every day in our adult life, like after college and everything. I would call him on my way home from school every single day. He'd be getting ready to go to work and that was our conversation. I miss our three thirty, four o'clock conversations. Well, yeah, just by like hearing it, you realize like how close that bond was that you guys had and yeah. how it must have been so difficult when that did actually stop. And so I'm curious a little bit more about his work and, and what was going on around that time. Actually, no, wait, let's go back to your dreams because your dreams started to occur before any of this other stuff happened. And so where were you in life at that time when you started dreaming about his death? I had just graduated. So I just probably started, graduated college, starting my first teaching job around that time. So he never finished college, which was a huge, huge thing to my parents. They really, really, really wanted Tori to finish college. And he didn't. And that's okay, because you know what? He made a lot more, hell of a lot more money than I ever would have made in my life. So it was probably around that time, Tori had taken a few jobs. He worked at an R&D company. He worked at a few others. 
And then he started working at the foxy lady. The foxy lady is exactly what it says or what you might think it is. Um, it is a gentleman's club in New Bedford, Massachusetts, also in Providence, Rhode Island, and in Brockton, Massachusetts. My uncle owns the club. Tori, in the year 2000, opened a bar at Plymouth State College. And he had a great, fabulous bar slash pizza place. And at the end of the year, right, end of the school year, so like May, June, all the kids went home for break. And he didn't really think that out, like, what's going to happen? And he realized, oh, no, like, I can't continue this sort of thing. So he closed the bar. And my parents said, you're going to have to do something. So he called my uncle and he said, hey, do you think I could work at the Foxy Lady? We don't hire family. And he said, like, please, can I have something? Can I just do something? And he said, fine, you can become a bar back, which means you bring bring up all the, the stuff out of the basement for the bartenders. So he did. That's exactly what he did for a few years. Or I don't know how, I should say years. To be honest, I don't remember how long it was. Um, but he did that for a while. And then he moved up the ladder. He became like management. And then eventually he became general manager. So that would have happened, I would say, around maybe the early 2000s. That, that would have happened. From general manager, that means he managed the, the New Bedford Club and the Providence Club. He lived in Providence, Rhode Island at the time. So he would drive back and forth between New Bedford and Providence, managing both clubs. To get this, to even get to the general manager position, because my uncle would not hire him, because as he said, we don't hire family, he was sent to Fort Lauderdale, Florida to manage a club down there as a guest manager as part of his, of his interview they put they sent three people down there and let somebody else down there make the decision so nobody from up here made the decision the the person in fort lauderdale like nominated tory hands down he is going to be the person so he became general manager at that time it's around then is when my dream started i can't tell you exactly why specifically but that's around the time that he became general manager and that's where my dream started. And so what were the dreams like when they first began and like how did they change over time or was it very similar? They were very similar for the most part. He was always killed at work. I never knew how it was a shooting, but that is all I could tell in my dream. And the beginning it, like you, you know how you sometimes wake up from a dream. You're like, all right, it's just a dream. It's not a big deal. And then they became more real and real and real, like really real to the fact that I would wake up some days and I would say, I don't have a brother. My brother died last night. And then I'd realize, what are you talking about? Like he's here. It's not a big deal. But they were always pretty much the same thing until the last year, the last year they became more vivid on what was going to happen. Now, what happened in my dream is there's one thing that did not happen in reality. In that year, up to the last year, the last year started becoming very, very vivid and more real to me. It, there was a, a robbery that somebody came in and was looking for money. And in the club, they had a safe that's in the floor. And the floor safe was on a timer. And I remember Tori telling me about this timer they put in and you can only open it certain times. And once it's closed, it's closed until the next time that you're allowed to open it. So I can't go in and put a little combination in right now and open it because it's not time to open at this time. So in my dream, they had, somebody had come in looking for money and they said, we just did a drop, you know, a half hour ago. I can't open it. And the person kept pushing and pushing and telling him he had to open it or they're going to kill him. And he tried to explain to them, he can't open it. It's not going to open. And so they shot and killed him. Now, in reality, that's not what happened. So I'm curious. So what actually happened in reality? In reality, a man by the name of Scott, Scott's the shooter, came in for Bobby the bouncer. There was a bartender at the time who had a relationship with Bobby the bouncer 
and Scott the Shooter, not at the same time. She and Bobby the Bouncer broke up. And yes, his actual name is Bobby, and yes, his actual name is Scott. It just works out that there's Bobby the Bouncer and Scott the Shooter. She broke up with Bobby and started dating Scott. And they dated, she and Scott dated for a little bit, and it just didn't work out. And she realizes, you know, I have a baby with, with Bobby. I should probably make it work with my baby daddy. So Bobby and the bartender got back together and left to scorn Scott. And Scott came in one night, got to Bobby, and Bobby on the radio said to my brother, like, Scott's here. They, we go back. They had a little confrontation about a week prior that Scott came in very drunk, very belligerent, you know, all this stuff. Tori knew Scott very well. Tori hired Scott actually to put in all of the surveillance cameras in the entire club, which gave Scott an upper hand on how the club looked and what was going on and where he could go and what he could do. So the night of the shooting, Scott came in very belligerent. Scott got, I mean, Bobby got on the radio and said, Scott's here. Tori said, you know, please make sure he leaves or whatever. And then there's a, bang, bang, pop, or whatever, and Scott shot, tor- sorry, Scott shot Bobby in the head two or three times, killed him instantly, which now has, in, you know, sparked this whole panic among the club. This is around between one o'clock and two o'clock in the morning. There were not many people in the club. There still were, but there were not many people there still. Scott now entered the club, and Tori is in the office, which is in the corner of the club. He, he sees what's going on on the cameras and the surveillance and security cameras and wants to try to get all of the girls out of the club. So he gets out into the main, on the main floor and starts taking as many people as he can out, try to get these girls out. He got some out and they went out a, an emergency door and the door shut behind them. And the girls started running up the road and as did he. And then he stopped and he saw a truck with its lights out, zoom up the road. And he said he thought that was the shooter leaving. He turned around and he tried to get back. He went back to the club. He tried to get back in that door that was locked. I mean, that um, he came out of, but it was a locked door because it's an emergency door. So you can't get in from the outside. So he bang, bang, banged on the door. And the person who opened the door is Scott. Sees Tori, they both see each other, and Scott shoots Tori the first time in the abdomen. That was the first time he was shot. A girl comes out of the club and tries to help Tori. Tori says a few things to her, including, tell my mother I love her. Like He kept pleading with her, please tell my mother I love her. And then Scott came back outside. The girl tried to... Um, flagged down a taxi service that was going by. At this point, 911 had been called and two police officers had responded. Scott was in the front of the club at the time, seeing these two police officers coming, and he shoots them. They both survived, but he did shoot at two officers, which puts a halt on how they are now approaching the club. There is a bridge that now has all the emergency personnel on it and nobody can grow any further. So they've called in SWAT, they've called in state police and they have local police there, but nobody can go any further because there is a live gunman. They see a taxi driver passing, going back to the back of the club now where my brother is with the girl. The girl flags down the taxi driver and says, all they wanna do is put Tori in the taxi to drive to where the ambulances are probably 500 feet away. They're not far, but they can't get to them. Scott comes back outside and puts the gun in her face and says, you better leave now or I'm going to effing kill you too. So like any one of us would have done, she turned and ran and ran. And as she did, she kept hearing more gunshots. And and Scott shot Tori six more times with an AR-15 at close range. That's where Tori died right there. In the meantime, Scott, I don't know how this exactly happened, but Scott gets on the phone with 911 and the 911 operator. He, the 911 operator talks to Scott 
and says as much as he can to try to get him to come out of the club. It's important that you come out. And Scott says no, because in his mind, he thinks that he's already killed two police officers and he knows he's killed two other people. So in his mind, he's killed four people. And he kept saying, and you can hear this call online, that he's killed two, he calls them pigs. Um, he's killed two of them. That he, He's going to go to jail. He's going to rot in jail. And the 911 operator keeps saying, no, 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 you haven't. Nobody's dead. Nobody's dead. Everybody's alive. You haven't killed anybody. And then what you hear is a big pop and you hear the, drop, the gun drop. He shot himself in the head on center stage. And then at that point, they realize that they can send everybody into the club. And that's how my brother was killed. <laughs> that's the reality of it, I that's should insane. say. That's a that's a insane story. It just takes yes. your breath away. You're just like, wow, what? Uh, it just keeps going and going, and there's all these elements that that come in there. It's like a made-for-TV movie. Yes. And so, what was it like for you to hear about that story? Because I'm guessing someone must have had to tell it to you because you had so many details, right? So, what was it like when you first heard about it all? Um. Well. Let's see. So going back to the dream, can I go back to that for a second? Because mm-hmm. you have to know like how it happened in order to see how these two things are connected. Tori dreamt prior. So let me give you a timeline. Tori was killed in December. In April, May-ish time, my mom, Tori, and I were all out together. And Tori told us of a dream that he had of how Something was going to happen in the club. And I said, well, you're going to have to get out of there. Like, you have to leave. And he said, nope, I'm the captain of the ship. I go down my ship. And he said, I'm not going to live to be 30. And we said, "Um, yes, you will. Like, don't talk like that. That's silly talk. And he said, I'm not. I'm not going to live to be 30. And two months later, three months later is June. And he turned 30. And I remember telling him on his 30th birthday, see, you turned 30. He said, I did, but I'm not 31. I'm the captain of my ship. I go down my ship. And it was at that point, really, my dreams started getting more and more intense. I would have this dream of him being killed at the club almost every month, very, very vividly. But again, in my dream, it was a robbery, nothing more than a robbery. Now let's jump to December, the day that this actually happened. The day that it happened. So for months prior, I would wake up, like I said, and I would tell my boyfriend at the time, like this just happened. And I would have wicked anxiety about it. And he would calm me down and say, relax, your brother's alive. This didn't happen. Like it's just a dream. He'd have to like bring me back to reality, if that makes sense. The day that it happened... I woke up at 2.08. I can tell you, I can still see the clock in my head. 2.08 in a.m., I woke up. And I woke up my boyfriend at the time. And I said, you know, Tori was killed. Tori was killed. And he said, at this point, it's old to him, you know. And he said, he's not been He's not killed. He's fine. He's fine. You need to go back to sleep. And it was so, so much more real to me than it, than it was before. But... Knowing that I've had this and knowing in my reality that, yes, he's right. My brother's fine. I'm just overreacting. It's my anxiety. You need to bring it back down to, you know, come back down to life or whatever. So I went back to sleep. And I now woke up at a regular time. But in that in-between dream time, I dreamt of his funeral and everything that was going to happen at his funeral. Now, I don't even know that he had been killed yet. No idea this has even happened yet. But I dreamt from 2.08 or whatever it was, but I went back to sleep until 5 o'clock when I would wake up, his funeral. And exactly everything that happened in his funeral did happen in real life. Wow. It just really makes you sit in the mystery of what's actually going on. Because this can be, you know, based on your perspective, it could help you as you grieve or really hinder you in your process. I want to first go, I guess, I guess go back prior to the death. When you had those dreams of his death, did you ever tell him about it? Yes. 
I told everybody about it, actually. My parents knew about this. My brother knew about this. Everybody knew about this. But everybody thought I was crazy. And it's just a dream. And I get it. I thought I was crazy, too. <laughs> Look at that. You're not. <laughs> That's so, it's just so strange, right? Like, because a lot of people, like, I've heard a lot of people with anxieties or fears will have dreams like that. But what's interesting is that you had these dreams and then they became more vivid as it got closer to the date. And then after it happened, it changed to his funeral, which is just like looking at that. I'm like, wow. So there just seems to be like, there's something that even you knew at that moment, even though you were never told that he died, something did change within you that you had no conscious awareness of. Yes, I completely agree. And I did not know at all. I didn't actually did not find out until quarter six in that morning that something had happened. My mom had called me. I had just, I just got a puppy. Her name is Gracie and she was just a little, little puppy. And I was outside with her trying to take her out before I went to school. And my mom kept calling and calling the house. Now we had a family Christmas party that, that coming Saturday and we had every intention to go shopping this week to get dresses for this. It was a black tie affair. We needed new dresses. And she kept calling the house and I was outside with Gracie trying to like get her to go outside so I could leave. And I kept thinking like, could you please stop calling the house? Because Randy, my boyfriend at the time is sleeping. Like stop trying to wake him. And I was annoyed that she kept trying to call. So I went in the house and I called her back and I said, what, what do you need? Yes, I know we're going shopping after school. And she said, you have to come over here right now. Something happened to your brother. And she would not tell me what happened. So panic sets in. And my now just, you know, little puppy is because I am upset because I'm panicking. She starts panicking. So I'm trying to like put her in a crate so I can leave. I run upstairs, tell Randy we have to go now. And that I can't drive because I'm in such a panic. And I live very close to my parents' home. That drive over there, I swear to you, took seven hours. I just felt he was driving so slowly. And I kept telling him to drive faster, drive faster. And I ran upstairs into my parents' bedroom where they were both sitting on the, sitting on the bed hugging each other. And I looked at the TV and the TV said, three killed at the foxy lady. And then I knew exactly what happened. Nobody actually said the words to me. I knew at that moment that the dreams I had are what just came to reality because it always happened at work. Wow. And how do you, how did you handle it all? Cause this has been like brewing in your mind, the possibility for around eight years yep. and then the moment where it happens. So what goes through, what goes through you? I don't even know. In a way, it's a I told you so because I knew this was going to happen, but you're not prepared for it. Like, regardless of how many times that I knew this was going to happen, you just always thought it was a dream and it wasn't going to be reality, but it was reality. And it just, it blew me away. And then that empty feeling that I woke up with many times of when I don't have a brother, like finally hit me. And that feeling was very familiar to me because I have, I had dreamt that I didn't have a brother so many times where I would wake up. I had felt that feeling before and it was very familiar to me and I was going to be okay because all the other times where I woke up, I was going to be okay. Yeah, I would imagine it's like a deja vu type feeling for you. It was very deja vu. Wow. And I find it interesting too, you just talked about because it happened so frequently and you had that feeling when you woke up, the feeling wasn't a shock to the system. It's like it took, like having all that actually benefited you in some weird way when it actually did happen to be able to not be completely devastated would be maybe the best words to use for that. Like you're able to realize that you you understand the feeling and that you're going to be okay. Yes, I a hundred percent agree. 
I really do think it was some sort of, I can't, I don't know what it was, but it was very cathartic to know that I was going to be okay because I was, because the familiar, the, the feeling was so familiar. Like, and I will say like being, going through this, um, you're never okay after like you find out, you know, find this out because before it was a dream and that my brother really was alive. Right. So it was justifiable that I was going to be okay. Now he wasn't alive. So how did I know I was going to be okay? I didn't know, but I did know subconsciously, if that makes sense. Well, there's just scenes there's you're, there's something else going on <laughs> that you're just connected to, right? Like in the sense of having that foresight and even understanding your brother did die when he did. And now you're understanding there's like, there is this understanding that you're going to make it through the, the tragedy. And that's interesting because you're right. You, know, you can't consciously put your finger on something, but just like there's a, there's some type of feeling inside. Huh. Yes. And it's very, I, you just can't really put it into words, I guess. But Tori and I were so close. I feel in a way. So 208 is when I woke up. The, they say that the, he died at two, between 205 and 210. I feel that because we were so close, he came to say goodbye to me. And that it was going to be okay. Like, this was him telling me it was going to be okay. That is interesting, right? Like, because you don't remember that dream or that conversation. But there's this, like, intuitive feeling about it. And so I always, I always wonder, you know, the, the moments when we're asleep that we don't remember, can they affect us? And you're saying they can in, in a way. Like, you carry it with you in some form, even though you can't rationalize it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, maybe it's like that. Maybe it's like that deja vu feeling. Like you have a feeling, but you don't know where it comes from. It's very much like that. It's very much like that feeling. Wow. Wow. Okay. That is, that is a wild story. I don't think, I don't, I've never heard anything quite like that on the podcast and even with my conversations with people in the sense of, you know, not only the lost type, how it happened, but also the, the dreams. Like we've had some people on that talked about having these dreams once, right? Once or even a couple of times, but nothing as frequent as yours. And then for it to then change right after to the funeral. I think that's, it's very unique. And I don't know what it says about you, but maybe there's something special inside you. There might be. <laughs> there, may, there may just be. Um, <laughs> And so I'm really curious as you sort of move forward, did those, did you continue have those dreams of him dying, which is very common after a trauma that people reenact that kind of scenario or did those dreams change at all or did they stop? They a hundred percent stopped of him dying. The only dream that I had about sort of the incident or all of this was one that still sticks with me. That so there's so because of the shooting and there was such an investigation and everything for a year after Tori was killed, I had to know everything that happened. I would research, I would go on the internet, I would do everything because I felt I need to know everything. Why did Scott do this? Why did this happen? But there are questions, there are whys that are never going to be answered. So the dream that I have had since then is very, very strong still where I don't know why we are here, but we are in one of the mansions in Newport, Rhode Island. No idea why it's there. And we're at a, like a prom sort of event. Don't know why it's prom either. We're in a very, very large room and everybody's dancing and everybody starts whispering. Like they don't want me to know something. And they're all whispering and like looking at me. And I know they're talking about me. And like the whole room parts like everybody moves from a side and at the other end of the room, I sometimes cry on this, sorry. At the other end of the room is Tori standing there. And I run over to him and everybody says, Tori's here. And I run over and I said, I get to talk to him. Nobody else does. And, they, and I said, I need to know what happened that day. I need to know everything. And he said, I can't tell you. And I said, 
why? And he said, because you, you can't know those details. No, the only people who know the details were the, those of us who died that day. So I can't tell you what happened. And I get so angry, he won't tell me. And he said, you can't know because nobody will understand where you got this information from. So I can't tell you. And that bothers me every day that when I have this dream, he tells me no. Wow. That is interesting. He's not wrong. No, yeah, he's not wrong. wrong. Yeah. No, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's so true, right? Yeah, people are like, how do you, are you sure you dreamt this? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting the details that don't come through and it's understanding that there's probably benefit in it for us. Yes, you know? I do agree. He will tell yeah. me that police don't know all these details, so I can't know it either. That's interesting. And at the end of the day, what would that detail really help when it comes to? Right. It's anything, not going right? to change anything. Right. No. Um, if anything, Scott killed himself. You... Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it's interesting hearing your feelings shortly after the death because it mimics a lot of traumatic. Like when we had um, Matthew. Matthew on uh, Matthew Bochi talking about how his father died in 9-11. He went on that's he, the same sort of mentality. Like he was, he was obsessed with finding out details about how his father had died. And to this day, there's still a lot of question marks and, but I can understand that need, especially right after uh, in a traumatic type loss of, of trying to understand how that person died. Yeah, I think to maybe give the closure i don't know um tori and scott were friends prior to this happening so i think what i want to know is why did scott do it if you guys were friends so tori was killed like on a tuesday and the previous saturday scott was at tori's house wiring his house for like surround sound and all that stuff why like, that's what i do that's the part i want to know is the why yeah, like what was the conversation? Were there medications involved? Was it just the rage that because once you're in a rage, like you can't think critically or, you know, you can't think like you normally would. Because, yeah, it's interesting. He killed Tori, but not the girl that was helping. Well, Tori. she wasn't actually there that night. Oh, OK. Um, she was supposed to work that night, but she called in sick for whatever reason. So she was not there. I think the in initial intent was to go for her as well. Scott actually knew what he was going to do because he left a suicide note and he apologized and said everything he was going to do that night. So he had gone in with the intention of what he was going to do. He also had the intention of holding everybody hostage. And I believe he had intention of killing more people that night, but didn't. I think after he shot the two police officers and he thinks that they died in which they did not. I think in his mind, like I'm in way over my head already and did not shoot anybody else. Yeah. That's a, those are questions that some, you know, some of those questions only Scott will be yep. able to answer. Cause you're, you're like, yeah, I would ask the same questions that you're wondering, like, why would you kill your friend? You know, if this is someone you cared about, and but again it's hard to get into the mind of a murderer exactly well you know there's mental health issues right like there's there's something there where the ability to cope isn't there and then you know all the other circumstances surrounding what was going on but yeah like you you hear that too with like people killing their own spouse or children and you're like how is that even possible like there's love there Right. There's a there's a sense of bond. Like, how yeah. can something be so beautiful one moment and then be so horrifying the next? And I, I don't have answers to that, but you sort of figure it has you know something to do with the mental health of the individual and and how they see the situation and how they cope with their emotions. That's exactly I think what it is, and I think Scott had a lot of those issues that were unresolved. And then for you going through all of this. I know you're looking for answers and you still kind of sort of want those answers, but like, is there anything else that's going on in your grief that maybe that you saw that you're maybe surprised about? I don't know. I think, I think I deal with it a lot better than I 
could have maybe i don't know it's a really good question because i'm really at a loss at this one <laughs> <laughs> i'm curious too about your emotions like did they change like is the because he died in 2006 so it's not how long it's been about 15 years now right yeah, yeah, we 15 yeah. years. <laughs> math. It's a math problem, Sean. Go on the board. <laughs> <laughs> the anxiety. Um, so in that time, like have you seen was it have you seen yourself change and when the emotions come and how the emotions come? Well, who I was 15 years ago and who I am now are two different people. That is true. The day my brother died, I died, a part of me died with him. And that bubbly, very personable person, I believe did go away. Because as much as, much as I still have that in me, I'm not as much as I used to be. I am much more in tune or emotional when it comes to sibling things. For instance, like, when I hear, and people say this all the time, like, oh my God, my sister's driving me crazy. My brother's driving me crazy. I would never wish, I wish I had never talked to them again. Stop saying that because really you do wish that. And one day you're going to really wish they were there. As much as they might drive you crazy today, one day they're going to be gone and you're not going to realize that. Yeah. And that's so true. Until something happens, a lot of people just don't understand the value of the relationship they have and the time they have with these people and you know what's important now is not or what's what they seem as important now or as, as a conflict or something wouldn't be important you know five years ten years later or if they died so it's like why why is there so much hard feelings like like let's work through this like it's not like let's understand that the bigger goal here which is developing that bond that can last eternity so uh, i'm glad you're able to to be able to work with your, your grief over time and to be able to become resilient and and still be able to keep a job and do everything that you're doing at the same time coming on the podcast or sharing such a really emotional and traumatic story. And, you know, I, I want to commend you to be able to, to for that and to tell the truth and saying there is some part of you that's still um still not alive after he died. Right. There's a part that is still being hidden i guess the way or or being suppressed and that's that's the road of grief right like there's a lot of us that are longing to to find whatever that is and hopefully in this life right we can find it but we don't know and all we can do is is t continue to talk about those those people and the truths that we we walk in in the road of grief you know i always say that this happened to me earlier in life um, I would have taken a different path. I think I would have become more of a grief counselor or some sort of person that worked with specifically with people that dealt with this. But I'd already become a teacher, and really that's what I love to do. So I have taken taken that path. And what I have found is when I have students at school who go through the death of a parent or a sibling or whatever, teachers will bring them to me and say, like, you know, she can talk to you if you'd like, that sort of thing, because I can relate to them. I know what they're going through. And I think that's where my life has kind of taken me. Now, counseling has helped me tremendously. I want to make definitely like two weeks after my brother was killed, I knew I could not handle this on my own. So I went straight into counseling and I've been there pretty much ever since. And that has really, really helped because I definitely developed anxiety over losing people or just in general i was wondering and I, there might not be an answer to this but what do you make of what happened to you like the mystery of that like the precog precog dream and and all that like what do you make out of all of it and what do you think the purpose was i'm not sure what the purpose was but i do believe that did make me a better person and a better teacher and why teacher? Because grief doesn't really come into teaching, but I think I'm more empathetic towards the situations and I can help more people around me. Yeah, it's interesting because like someone that has that type of dream would then maybe think other dreams were also that. Have you had anything like that after where you've had another negative dream or something? 
or even a positive room, I guess, that you thought was precognitive and it just never happened? Never happened? Hmm, good question. No, because the one I had did happen. Yeah, that's interesting, right? Like, I think that's very, there's something about that dream. And I think it's something you said, like, it's like deja vu, you can't consciously understand. And, and it's just finding, I'm looking at it as a form of discernment on when would a dream be precognitive and when wouldn't it be? And I've heard lots of stories of people who have one and will then think other ones are them and other people who just know when one is and one isn't. And it's like, you see this through all different types of religions. So it's something that is, you know, a part of human nature to be able to have these experiences, but we just can't understand them yet. And that is, that's a, that's a, that's a question. Maybe you can ask your brother next time you see him. (laughs) 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 So uh, what we like to, to ask people at the end of a podcast is if you could have a dream tonight, of your brother, what would that look like? I would love just to be able to sit and talk to him. If I could just sit and talk to him during my dream and like fill him in on everything that's been happening, like in my life. And I know he knows that, but like even let him like tell me about what he thinks the last 15 years have been for me, like get his opinion on it sort of thing. I would love that. Oh, that'd be nice. Would you be at the dance club still or would it be somewhere else? Yeah. <laughs> no, we'd definitely be somewhere else. So what would be a perfect location for you? Did you guys have like a really like a secret spot or someplace you always like to go? Or wanted to um, go? We would actually go to lunch at Andino's in Providence, Rhode Island. And I think that would be perfect for us. We would have lunch at Andino's and we would just sit and chat. I would love that. Andino's, uh, that's the spot. Shout out Andino's. <laughs> really, honestly. <laughs> uh, no, that that's awesome, and, and some you know that's that that seems like uh, obviously something that's perfect for the two of you, and, and brings you to a place where you know just something simple where you want to be. What uh, would you guys have for lunch over there? What do they do? They're an Italian place, and whenever we would go, we would have chicken salt and bocca. I had never heard of it until my brother ordered it for me one day, and that became our thing. And to be honest, I haven't had it since. I would only eat it with him. Wow. I'm having deja vu right now. I feel like <laughs> I've heard this answer before and asked this question before. Oh, that's weird. Anyways. Yeah, that's because I've never heard that before in my life. Um, I've known what that food is. But <laughs> the, the, uh, <laughs> that's so interesting, and it's nice that – just talking about like your loss and the journey you've been on, it's amazing how that story has come out just at the end, how there is something that has changed. And another aspect is the food you've ate, right? Like, so yeah, it's amazing the small details of our life that changes that we may not, if asked the question, may not actually recognize until we just start talking about who we are and who we are now. And so that's uh, just an interesting part of the grief journey and that it's okay. And that's okay for people if they're dealing with that in their own life. I agree. You know, yeah. grief is a, is a big journey and it's one that never, none of us ever really want to be on, whether it be the death of a parent, the death of the, you know, a dog or a sibling. It sucks. But it is a journey we all have to go through and learn to navigate at our own pace. Yeah, it's, um, it's one of those things. It's, it's a journey. and and. Thank God we get to take this journey with others. I mean, unfortunately, but thank God that we have others with us who we can talk to and, and share stories and hear stories. And again, this is what a what a compelling. And you did a great job of telling the story as well. But w- what a crazy situation and circum, cir- circum circumstances surrounding the death of your brother. And it's just obviously, but you tell it with a lot of love and just what happened. That's uh, just mind blowing. Like I'm just thinking about that again like wow well and i'm looking at it too as you found out through the news so a lot of people you knew would have heard about the story it would have been news and like the difficulties and the challenges that may bring also because i know when my dad died it was i had the chance to choose who i told and when kind of thing but people were telling your story ahead of time oh yes that definitely brings a whole other layer into the into it because you are 
you were the leading story on the nightly news every day. You know, it was my ex-boyfriend in Australia called me. He's like, I just heard on CNN. Like, this was a really, really big thing. We had police detail at my parents' house for days, uh, you know, putting the media away, pushing media away. They weren't, weren't going to give interviews or anything for a while. So it definitely makes you, like, it pushes you into it. There's something that you're not ready for because it's so publicly known. Yeah, I remember we had a guest on, I think it was a couple of years ago, Sean, where the media came after there was a death. And the angle that a lot of the media people were trying to get at was like to like the ban guns. And so like what I really took from learning that story is that like, it's hard to tell your story in the truth through the media because there's an there's usually an angle of some sort and i i don't know if i would even talk to the media if my dad died in, in some way like that because it is very difficult to have an open and honest conversation about the feelings you're processing and the truth you want to share on whatever it is so i'm glad you're able to come on this media you know a couple years later and talk about the story and how it happened and and your life afterwards Thank you. I really appreciate it. But media, I do agree that they have their angle they want to take on sometimes. And especially I felt with murder because they want to, murder is always has a stigma, a stigma attached to it. So they want to get like, well, what else could this happen? You know, it was a gentleman's club. So obviously there's something going on there. No, there's no obviously of anything. People go there all the time. Yeah, people want to make, a, especially a thing like murder, uh, you know, robberies, whatever, into that. Well, it's a one-off, or it's 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 an occasional thing. But there's, it's not just uh, they're they're not just stats. It's not just a line on a on a newspaper. These are real people, and real things happen. And there's a whole gamut of information that's involved in all of this. And it's better to have. Like, like you're coming on and actually talk about it, given the time to talk about it. It's not something that can be done in five minutes or two minutes. It's something that, you know, you want to hear, like, for, which you did a great job doing the story and to hear it from you and to people close to it. it it's it puts a human element to it rather than just being a sensational type of uh, thing like that. Yes, I agree. The one good thing I will just add um, that came out of this was I told you that when it happened, the um, the nine one one like all the emergency personnel had to stay away because they didn't know how, they, this was the, like one of the first like really big shootings in Massachusetts, um, specifically with an AR fifteen. They have now trained lots and lots of police departments and everything around the country on how to uh, use this as a training on how to react to be able to get into places faster and help the victim sooner. So I believe, I think that that's some good came out of that. Oh, absolutely. And that's, um, you know, it's great to have that mindset and say like, well, out of this terrible situation, this is uh, something that can be changed in the future and to help out someone else who possibly is injured and, and has a situation like that. And how do we get the police better trained on that? So that's, that's awesome. Tara, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for sharing your dreams. And thank you for uh, just doing such a great job in sharing with us your brother's life and also the circumstances around his death and the dreams around that. And I just want to, again, say thank you to, to all that. Yeah, so uh, people, you can check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. If you'd like to contribute to the podcast, you can do so. There are links on uh, the website where you can do that as well there is on our website griefdreams.ca there are links to online courses uh, presented by dr black and jade carling black which you can check out uh, definitely do so if you have facebook you can join the grief dreams group you can share your dreams or hear more dreams of others uh, we are on twitter and instagram at grief dreams and as always we love to end the podcast with love and gratitude from us to you
enjoy this conversation in English. And questions? I have introduced myself. You have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.